Join Bloomberg in San Francisco or virtually on May 7th for The Future Investor, Data-Powered Transformations. This 2024 event series will examine how data is not only playing a pivotal role in investment decisions, but serves as a driving force behind the construction of innovative investable enterprises. This series is proudly sponsored by Invesco QQQ. Register at BloombergLive.com slash FutureInvestor slash radio. I'm David Tweed. I'm a government reporter at Bloomberg here in Hong Kong. And with me is Tom McKenzie, who's just completed the fourth of our series on the Belt and Road Initiative. And this is a series that actually looks very closely at uh, the Belt and Road Initiative and how it's doing in Europe. And I have to say, it's got some mega personalities uh, on it. It's a really good looking program. And you start in uh, Athens, Tom. Uh, I was particularly interested in, in, in how... Uh, China apparently describes Piraeus Port in Athens as a dragon's head. What 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 is that all about? Yeah, no, never short of, of colourful phrasing, uh, the Chinese, when it comes to things like this. They say, and they've described it as being a, a link for their overland and maritime routes that, of course, are the Belt and Road Initiative. And they are very proud of the operations that they have in place in Piraeus. It is run now by Costco. China's major, major shipping arm. And they run it and have done in the last few years. They took over the concession in 2013, fully running this port. And they've had quite a lot of success. In fact, they've recently reported their profits for the first half of the year that were up around 100% from the last time in 2017. So they see it as a, as a, as a key test that they can show an example, a case study they can show to others uh, of success in terms of their ability to take over uh, a port and make it work and integrate it into their Belt and Road initiative. And, and, and so tell us, what's the response been like on the ground to this? What do the Greek businesses think? Well, that was interesting. We, we went there and we spent some time in and around Piraeus, which is a, a fairly deprived part of Athens. And we were expecting to find people there, businesses and residents who had issues with uh, the Chinese running of this port. Uh, there had initially been some complaints, particularly from the unions, when China and Costco took over the running of the port. But in fact, what we found was, uh, I guess you could describe it as a kind of reluctant acceptance amongst businesses there that in fact, the Chinese were running it very well, uh, that it had increased trade flows, uh, that Piraeus had benefited from it, and that their, benefit, be, their business businesses uh, were benefiting from it as well. And they were looking to take advantage uh, of the opportunities. There are still concerns, and those were voiced by some of the business leaders that we met there, around whether or not Chinese firms are going to start to eat up some of the opportunities, particularly around the logistics side of the business that spin off from the broader port. <laughs> Uh, but generally, the sentiment that we got was was positive. Tell me, Tom, uh, what about in terms of employing locals at the port? Are there are there more people being employed? Well, this was a key question when Costco took over the running at Piraeus, and it was a key concern, of course, for the unions as well. Look, when we went there, all the workers on the ground, all the workers using the forklift trucks, shifting the cargo off these huge tankers, they were all Greek. And you go into the main office where the head of the port sits with his Greek counterparts, 
the managers are, are Chinese, but they work alongside Greek management as well. And, you know, you've got the Chinese flag flying, the Greek flag flying, you've got pictures of the Great Wall of China, you've got pictures of the Acropolis next to each other. Uh, so they would say this is a really good example of the two sides working together. So they are continuing to, the majority of employees there are Greek in, in short answer. Uh, and they've been adding headcount as the port's operations have grown. Though, of course, automation is playing an increasing role in this port as it is in ports all over the world. Well, yeah. I thought it was interesting, actually, that you mentioned, and we actually saw you had an interview with the Chinese manager of the port, because in some of our other programs, uh, particularly in the, in the one in East Africa, uh, the, uh, the Chinese actually were very careful not to be uh, sort of shown on screen. Mm. Uh, but in this case, you, you, you spoke to the, to, to the manager. What was his uh, take? I think you're right. I think it points to a level of confidence in their operations there. They opened their door to us. We spent time, as you say, talking to the manager, Jiang Anming. We got access, pretty good access to the port and its operations, which, again, I think shows that they are at least trying to be transparent and are confident and relaxed about bringing foreign journalists in uh, to poke around a bit. Uh, he said that, look, we're benefiting more broadly from the, from the Belt and Road Initiative. We, he said that we didn't and they are not getting funds, direct financing from the central government for this as part of this initiative, but they're benefiting because of the tick up and pick up in trade flows uh, and that they're working to expand the operations there. They've got the container terminal, they've also got the car terminal and a ship repairs uh, part of the business as well that they're investing in. Uh, so they continue to, to increase investment in the port and, and they continue to see opportunities there. Tom, the other place that you, you went, well, one of the other places you went to, I mean, it looked like you'd traveled all over uh, over uh, all over Europe, it looked lovely. Actually, it was in the middle of the summer. Hmm. Can't think of anything more pleasant. Uh, although I hear it was pretty hot. But one of the other places you went was um, Duisburg, right? Mm. Um, another uh, town, a German town, which is looks to be benefiting from the the entire initiative, right? Yeah, again, this is this kind of forlorn China, uh, I should say, this is the kind of forlorn uh, German city that was once a part of the industrial uh, economy there. So coal and steel uh, was really the driving force of the economy of Duisburg uh, a couple of decades ago. That, of course, has all changed. Uh, there's pretty high levels of unemployment there, uh, and the, the economy uh, has struggled in recent years. But certainly the port there, which is the largest overland port in Europe, and the access, the connections to China and Chinese trade flows have helped to change the prospects for the city. There are still problems there, but they are seeing a tick up in trains coming from cities like Chongqing and Yiwu in China, bringing those goods, particularly IT equipment, computers, laptops, that kind of thing, as well as clothes and toys, bringing it into Duisburg and then funneling it out to the rest of the European Union. And the town and, and, I think and the city one, is benefiting. One of your metrics... Was I think you said there was 30 trains a week are arriving, and that's going to rise to 50 by 2020. So it is a significant growth, I suppose. Yeah, I mean, look, some would say that that's an overly ambitious target, but the, the numbers now are, are around 30, and yes, they've, they've signaled they want to get it up to 50. Uh, there's an element of caution around that number uh, for various reasons. They also want to cut down the time as well that it takes. Currently, it takes about 12 days to go from a city like Chongqing to Duisburg. They want to cut that town, of course, because it makes it a more attractive proposition. They're trying to position themselves between, uh, between freight, uh, overseas freight, and airline uh, freight. So that's wow. the proposition they're aiming for. 
The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor Q&B. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Tom, you were also in Brussels. Um, what is the EU stance on on this uh, BRI initiative? I mean, are they concerned about the geopolitical implications? Yes, I think those concerns, uh, frankly, are there. And the, the concerns that they really push at this point, though, at this stage, are concerns around transparency, the bidding process of these Belt and Road initiatives around sustainability, financial sustainability, fiscal sustainability, uh, the environment as well, uh, environmental sustainability. These are all issues they say that simply are lacking in terms of uh, being baked in to Belt and Road projects. They say that they, they want to be involved from the European perspective, but China needs to do a better job of baking some of these, these norms uh, into this initiative in order for the European Union to really get on board. And is there some document or anything that the European Union actually needs to, you know, approve or to sign off on uh, to, in order to, to, for this integration to deepen? Well, there was, there was a Belt and Road Summit held in Beijing, the first one last year, and the Chinese made an effort to try to strong arm the Europeans into signing off on the Belt and Road Initiative, and the Europeans pushed back pretty strongly, and it caused something of a something of, a, something of a, a, a sore point or at least a point of tension between the two sides uh, because simply these, these pledges around, again, around the, the, the bidding process and around environmental standards and uh, economic standards and fiscal standards weren't there as far as the Europeans were concerned. So they haven't signed on to it um, and, and the, the Chinese would dearly love them to do that. Uh, we are still, it seems, at a fair distance away from that happening. The Europeans have put forward their own proposals around infrastructure uh, they've got a connectivity plan that they hope will be, will be able to be in addition to or will complement the Belt and Road Initiative. And they want the Chinese to embrace that. So that's kind of where we're at at this stage. If the two sides can come together and if you can have that connectivity plan that the Europeans have put forward baked into the Belt and Road Initiative, then you're going to see uh, much more enthusiasm from the Europeans. The geopolitical concerns there was a are another, case, another set of concerns. Tom, there was a case recently, or was it last year, and it was uh, a, a case of... Um, Greece and I think another country was it Hungary? It was um, Hungary yes. that um, that uh, had, had had voted against um, uh, some uh, decision that needed unanimity uh, on the European Union. Is there still a sense that China will try and attempt to peel off just one country, like we've sort of seen with China's approach to the South China Sea, where yeah. it it gets in the way of ASEAN unity by pressuring Laos or Cambodia. Uh, not to sign up to uh, statements that need unanimity. Is, is there a concern about uh, that strategy playing out in, in the U European Union? Yeah, there is that concern. And we spoke to Paul Henley from the Carnegie Tsinghua Institute. He's a former member of the National Security Council uh, for the White House I in Washington. We spoke to also Francois Gourdemont from the European Council on Foreign Relations. And they both pointed to this concern that China was using this divide-and-conquer approach vis-à-vis -vis the Belt and Road Initiative, vis-à-vis -vis its investments in Europe, and particularly trying to leverage those investments when it comes to countries that need that fiscal uh, support, so countries like Greece and Hungary. And you pointed to that, that example. There was an example, for example, uh, as well, of the European Union trying to put out a statement 
in relation to the South China Sea and the Greeks and the Hungarians watering that statement down. And that was seen as an example of China's leverage in, in that regard. So that is a concern as well, clearly, amongst the Europeans. Now, you spoke to Joe Kaiser, who's the chief executive of Siemens, which is, uh, you know, it, Siemens has been investing in having uh, business in China since it first exported a power generation 150 years ago or something. Mm. Um, so what did Joe Kaiser, did, did, he, did he respond to any of these sorts of concerns about transparency that the European Union has? He did. He, he, he said, I put it to him, you know, you're at risk of tarnishing the brand, the Siemens brand, by associating yourself uh, with companies, with state-owned enterprises and initiatives that don't have the same levels of corporate governance uh, and transparency that maybe a company like Siemens does. And he pushed back on that and said, look, we simply will not work on projects where there are concerns around graft, for example, or where the bidding process hasn't been transparent. Uh, but effectively, his point was, this is such a vast project um, and, and, you know, you can take issue with it, but it is going to happen and you need to get involved and, and steer it in the right direction. He said a company like Siemens can bring our expertise, as he would say, uh, to the table and help to shape these projects so that they meet the norms that the Europeans, but others like the US and Australians want to see as well. So that was his position. As he certainly sees it as uh, obviously an opportunity for Siemens at a time when the business is struggling in some areas. And he said it could end up replacing the WTO. Now, I don't think that's a fairly strong statement from him, um, but he was saying, you know, his point really was if you don't get on board, uh, then you risk uh, missing out on, on this opportunity. that is involving 90 countries, as he put it, and about 70% of the world's population. Yeah, that comment that he had about uh, the uh, BRI eventually or possibly re replacing the WTO, very, very interesting. But also, look, I was more interested in the fact that you actually got him on a factory floor. How did you get him out of his office? Hmm. Well, I think that goes to show the extent to which Siemens wants to be affiliated with this initiative. That We obviously contacted them, said we're doing this show on the Belt and Road Initiative. They said, we're fine, we want to be involved. They've got an office in Beijing dedicated to the Belt and Road Initiative. They've signed something like 10 memorandums of understanding. They really want to be a leading force from the corporate side. Uh, in in this initiative and in, in shaping some of these uh, some of the opportunities, and they think that they they can bring a lot to play. So that's that's I think an example of of just their willingness to show that they they are signing up to this, even if the European Union itself isn't. So got them inside one of these massive turbine uh, factories where they design and build and put together some of these huge turbines, uh, and we and, and you know he gave a pretty forthright um, set of views. Uh, on the implications of this initiative, which he said is are not perfect. It is not perfect, he said. Um, but the idea of ignoring it uh, is is uh, is a, is not something that should be uh, should be considered. Well, I think that anecdote that you just told about how uh, Siemens has got an office dedicated to Belt and Road in Beijing pretty much shows exactly what European business thinks about the whole initiative and how seriously they're taking it. Tom, thank you very much. Um, and, and everyone, you know, thanks for listening. It's been a great series. I'm David Tweed in Hong Kong. I've been speaking with Tom McKenzie in Beijing. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? 
which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox president Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF.